My name is Adam. I am on staff here at Mission View as the pastor of Student Ministries, which is really just a fancy title of saying I work with students. Uh, and it's really a joy to be a part of this ministry. It's really a joy to be a part of Mission View. And so I have the pleasure of uh, bringing God's word to you today. Pastor Steve has entrusted this to me as he is on a beach somewhere on vacation. But we are in a series. It's called Working for God. And sometimes I feel like we get into a series and we start going a couple weeks. And then what happens is the Bible and scripture becomes narrowed down into maybe a couple verses. And we, we struggle to understand the whole context, the whole context of the passage that we're looking at, the whole context of the series that we're in. And so I want to give us sort of a, a refresher on working for God as a series. But in order to do that, we need to kind of do an overview of 2 Corinthians again. And I think that uh, maybe that sounds like we're, we're going over something we've already gone over, and that's true. But it is uh, particularly beneficial, I believe, for this passage. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can kind of put your finger in it for a minute. This book, like many in the New Testament, is a, uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church, a young church. And this is actually one of four letters that he wrote to the church at Corinth. He was there, he, uh, he was doing some evangelism at, the church, or at Corinth, uh, and a church kind of emerged out of that, and he moved on to work at the church at Ephesus, when in doing so, he heard back some reports about the church at Corinth, and they're not very good. He heard about some problems, some, uh, some divisions in the church, some inappropriate sexual relationships, improper exercising of, of liberties at the church in Corinth. And so he responded by writing two letters, one of them we know as 1 Corinthians. And it's not, it's not the best letter to the church. If you've ever kind of zoomed out and thought about the entire New Testament, most of it is reprimanding churches for stuff. Most of it is reprimanding churches. So how many of you feel like you yourself or our church needs reminders sometimes? Yeah, a couple of you. Uh, it's really good news, actually, to me. It's, it kind of, maybe this isn't appropriate, but I like to sometimes compare our church and compare churches nowadays to those back in, in the New Testament. And I'm like, you know, we're not that bad off. We're not that bad off. I think a lot of people like to be upset about the state of the church and everything's wrong in our world. But if you really go back and look at some of what Paul is writing about in First and Second Corinthians, we've come a long way as a church, as a body of Christ. And so uh, his first letter, or this, the First Corinthians letter, is not very good. In fact, he goes on and says that they are like infants in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And so after he sends these letters, he goes back to visit them. And there, we, we understand this from First and Second Corinthians, there was some opposition in the church. There were some false teachers who were proclaiming and teaching a false gospel, something contrary to what he was preaching and proclaiming. And as he's there, these, this opposition uh, starts to criticize him, starts to attack him, attack his character. And he receives no support from the church at Corinth, who he so dearly loved. And so he ends up leaving. And in doing, after he leaves, he writes back a letter to the church once again. And this is known as the severe letter, the severe or sorrowful letter. And it's referred to in 2 Corinthians. That's how we know it exists. We don't have this in our Bible canon today, but we know that the severe letter exists And so Paul is very upset about this, and 
After some time, he goes to Trials where he's uh, supposed to meet up with Titus, a contemporary of his, but he's not there. So he goes on to Macedonia, and he meets up with Titus, and he's like, Titus, what's the news? How was the letter received? And Titus says, it was received well, which is very good news. And so Paul decides that he is going to write 2 Corinthians, the letter of 2 Corinthians, to uh, not congratulate, but encourage the church at Corinth and say, oh, he's going to come back. He's going to visit them. Um, so that's kind of the setup. That's, why, that's how we get to 2 Corinthians. Why is that important? Because Paul is someone who identi- identifies himself as a minister of the gospel. He identifies himself as a worker for God. In many of these New Testament letters, he introduces himself and his companions as co-workers for the gospel. And so when he writes letters to churches, he has a point and he has a purpose behind them. And so finally, in the book of 2 Corinthians, we get to a point where his purpose behind the letter is not that bad, especially when compared to 1 Corinthians and the severe letter. In fact, it's a little bit more favorable, and surely there's some things that he has to address in the church, but overall, there's a much better tone to the letter. And I say this because Paul has shifted his view of the church at Corinth from being infants in Christ to being co-workers for the same gospel, just like he does with his compatriots. He has shifted his view about the church itself to now being co-workers for God on the same team, united under the same banner, co-ministers of the gospel. And so Paul, a worker for God himself, is writing to the church to encourage them and remind them of some things that they need to know as a church if they themselves want to be working for God. Working for God. And that's how we get our series title. So some of his goals are kind of obvious in this letter, which we'll see. For example, he's continuing to take up a collection for poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And that's something that contributes to the grand idea that we're all part of one church, one church global. We work together. We are one church who participate in a work of comfort, participate in a work of faithfulness. These are some of the messages we've done so far. We participate in the work of success. And today we're going to talk about how, as one church, we participate in a work of life, in a work of life. So um, we're we're going to look at that. Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll pray for us. God, thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us uh, as a church. Thank you for the fact that you use broken people to be ministers of the gospel, to be co-workers together so that we can proclaim who you are and what it is you've done for us. I pray that we would not lose sight of why your church exists, and that is to make disciples, make disciples of you, because we understand what it is like to have a relationship with you, God. And so I pray that we'd be reminded of that this morning. Amen. Picking up from last week, Uh, When Pastor Steve spoke, I actually want to begin at the back end of chapter 2. And starting in verse 14, a lot of commentators say that this is the beginning of a big, great digression for Paul in this letter. Remember, this is a letter. How many of you have a crazy uncle who sometimes goes on rants and stuff like that? Raise your hand. Only a couple of you. That's actually not very good. If you didn't raise your hand, you're probably the crazy uncle in your family. I have an uncle who sometimes at like a family gathering or a family party, I'll kind of be standing next to him and we'll grab some, we like like little buffet spreads for Thanksgiving and stuff and I'll grab some cheese cubes 
And I'll sit next to him, I'll stand next to him, and he'll just go, you know, it's millennials' fault. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes on this big rant about how millennials are ruining this generation and, you know, stuff like that. So he's one of my crazy uncles that goes on these big digressions like that. Paul, in this, in this letter, in this point in time, is one of those crazy uncles. He spends the first chapter or two talking about his itinerary and how he's going to come visit the church in Corinth. And then he launches into a five-chapter digression about ministry. But if you're a Christian, you need to know this if you want to be a worker for God like Paul. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, as through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, Christ, everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? That's kind of our key verse which launches us into chapter 3. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So in the beginning of this part, Paul reminds us of the gospel, that Christ has triumphed for us, that we have a problem called sin, and because of it, our relationship with God is fractured, it's messed up. And this is the bad news, kind of before the good news. But Christ, through death and resurrection, has conquered and defeated sin. And notice that he says this is a life-giving fragrance to some and a death-giving fragrance to some. I would say that this is a pretty accurate description of how two different kinds of people might hear the gospel or react to the gospel. And then in verse 16, he asks that key question, who is sufficient for such things? So, essentially, who is worthy to talk about the gospel. Who is worried to talk, uh, worthy to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ? That's the context for chapter 3. So we're going to look at three things today. One, what does a minister of the gospel or a worker for God look like? What does a minister of the gospel look like? Two, what does a minister of the gospel or a worker for God preach? I'm going to use those kind of interchangeably. And three, what is the result? What is the result? So I'm going to go ahead, and finally, we're going to dive into our verse for this morning, our passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There's a lot in there, and there's a lot. We're going to do actually 18 verses this morning, so there's a lot to go over. Uh, and I'm going to try to do it piece by piece. So first is, what does a minister look like? In verse 1, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? This word actually means to introduce or reintroduce. And he says, as some do, referring to his opponents. Remember I mentioned there are people around in the church at Corinth who are preaching a false gospel, something contrary to what he believed. 
And what they would do is in the early church, they would come with written letters, accolades, commendations, referrals to say, hey, you know, I went and spoke to this group and they've, they've referred me here. And they would kind of come with their resume in order to speak at a church. And Paul is asking, does he need to reintroduce himself to this church? No, he reminds them of his genuine ministry towards them and their personal relationship. And so Paul already in verse 1 and 2 is saying he doesn't need to come and spout off his resume to them, to the church at Corinth. And so if we're going to look like look at what does a minister of the gospel, what does a worker for God look like, I want to posit to you that a minister is humble. A minister is humble. This is especially interesting to me because in Philippians chapter 3, Paul does kind of spout off his resume, and he says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But this is what he says in chapter 3, verse 7 of Philippians. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Paul understands that a minister is humble. That's the first point. Not only that, but Paul knew that the people themselves were sort of his resume. They substituted and took the place of his resume. And so Paul is people-oriented. Paul cares about people. Notice he says, you uh, show that you were a letter from Christ delivered by us on tablets of human hearts. Paul is people-oriented. He cares about people. And so I want to ask you this. If you are church hopping, and maybe you're the type of person who your family bounces around from church to church, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Are you looking for an all-star preacher and a big stage and fabulous musicians? I'm not saying that any of those things in themselves are bad, but I want to let you know that you might be looking for the commendation side of things. Have you ever considered wanting to go to a church where you knew that the people, the senior pastor, the leadership are humble and people-oriented? So say what you want about Steve. You can say whatever you want about Steve while he's on vacation, by the way. Say what you want about Steve, but I would say that our lead pastor is somebody who is humble and people-oriented. And so while sometimes we get frustrated at the state of, of the music or frustrated with what's going on in the children's ministry or the youth ministry, we have people in our church who are humble and people-oriented. So Paul, like Paul, he can sometimes be an intense guy. We've been having conversations in staff meetings about how one of our staff members is uncomfortable with Paul sometimes. He can sometimes be an intense guy, but uh, he has learned humility and he's learned how to love the church of Christ, which kind of leads into the next few points. Starting in verse 3, Paul compares ink and tablets to the spirit and hearts. You show that your letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Ink is something that, that is man-made and it, it fades away. As opposed to things that are man-made and, and man-approved, Paul's ministry to the church at Corinth is God-made and God-approved. Notice he says, you are a letter from Paul. No, not Paul, you're a letter from Christ. 
He understands that he is merely an instrument of God. So that's the third point. A minister is an instrument. A minister is an instrument. Actually, the word ministry, which we will see used a, a several times throughout this passage, is from the Greek, Greek word diakonos, which means servant, and is someone who literally executes the commands of another. In Matthew 20, 26, when Jesus is speaking with his disciples and they ask, who is the greatest? And Jesus says, whoever uh, among you wishes to be great, they must first become a servant. That word is diakonos. So minister, an instrument, is literally a servant. Diakonia means service. So we want, as ministers, as workers for God, co-workers in the gospel, to understand that we need to be humble, we need to be people-oriented, we need to be instruments who are in the service of another. Do these kind of look like they all belong in the same group here? You kind of see the pattern? And Paul doesn't do this ministry haphazardly. He engages in heart-to-heart -heart ministry. He says, on tablets of human hearts. Before ministry happens on the outside, it happens on the inside. And going along the same vein of being an instrument and being humble, I want to ask you some questions. Uh, have you ever considered leading worship on stage? And if so, have you ever thought about why you want to do that? Is it because you want to engage in heart-to-heart -heart ministry and you care about leading God's people in worship, or is it just because you want to be on the stage? Have you ever considered the fact that you can lead God's people in worship in heart-to-heart -heart ministry from right there in your chair every week? Have you ever thought about working with students? Is it because you enjoy young people and you want to, maybe you want to feel young and youthful or something? Or is it because you want to see young people come to faith and you pray each week for every student by name? That's what it means to do heart-to-heart -heart ministry. And I think from this passage, we can gather a little bit about how Paul feels about the church at Corinth. Real heart-to-heart -heart invested ministry happens on your knees. This, this is what it means to be in the trenches of ministry. This is what it means to be a worker for God or a minister of the gospel. And so my next point is that a minister is invested. A minister is invested. Here Paul references tablets of stone, and that's a, a reference to Exodus 31. And he's providing an Old Testament backdrop. And we're going to cover that later. So kind of put a pin in that. And then finally, in verse 4, Paul answers that question that he asked in chapter 2. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul answers the question of sufficiency or adequacy for his ministry. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? And his, basically his answer is, not me. His answer is, not us. We're not. Once more, he points to God, and he doesn't just point to God as, as the, the point of glory like he would if he was an, an instrument, a minister is an instrument. He doesn't just say, oh, direct all glory to God. He doesn't just do that, but he understands that his point of strength is from God. So God, in the sense of ministry, is not just the end all, but God is also the beginning. He's the point of destination and of origin. So any sort of ministry that you want to do, any sort of work for God that you want to participate in must begin and end with Him. 
So when it comes to the question of sufficiency, I want to let you know that a minister is capable. A minister is capable. Here's what I mean by that. I had, uh, I had someone approach me about working in student ministry, and they said, I would love to work with students. I think students are great, but I'm just not cool enough. Not cool enough. And I was like, so? <laughs> I'm not cool enough? They were like, I don't, I don't know if I could be, I could be hip and, and, you know, like, talk about the same things. I'm not very fashionable. And I said, it doesn't matter. You can still work with students. You don't have to, do, uh, you know, be young and hip and things like that. And so you can't say, oh, I'll just leave it to somebody who is more capable. Maybe in some things, yes. If you don't have a singing voice and you can't sing, I'm not suggesting that you come and try to lead worship for people. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying try to work with the kids' ministry if you don't love working for kids or that's a challenge to you. But what I am saying is the time for being idle because you've questioned your ability or your capability is over. The time for being a consumer Christian is over. And so I want to encourage you to participate in the areas of ministry that maybe aren't as glamorous. Whether that's holding open a door or, or, or setting up and tearing down the things that don't get any accolades or, or recognition from people. I want to encourage you outside of the church to, to get to know your neighbors. I want to encourage you to pray. I once heard someone say that you, uh, you see the popularity of the preacher by the attendance on a Sunday morning service, but you see the popularity of Jesus by the prayer meetings that your church holds. There are four or five of you uh, sitting out in the courtyard this morning praying together. This is what it means to be a minister of the gospel, a minister who is humble, people-oriented, an instrument, invested, capable. So if you're a young person in the church, don't leave it to the older folks to do all the praying. If you are older, don't leave it to the young people to do all the working with students. Women, don't leave it to the men to do all the setup and tear down. Men, don't leave it to the women to do all of the work in children's ministry. Because you are capable of being vital for the cause of Christ as the person you are. Nobody leave outreach events and ideas for someone else to figure out and execute. We all as Christians are sufficient to be ministers for the gospel because it's not about us. And so I'm not saying these things to convict you or confront you. I'm saying them to encourage you. You are capable and necessary and vital for the cause of Christ because God has made you to be a sufficient minister of the gospel. Ministry is not something that is reserved for Mission View staff. Minister is not a term that is reserved for somebody who works in a church. It is for everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Paul says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about the new covenant, but we must also talk about the old covenant and what that looks like in order to do so. And Paul kind of naturally transitions here. So that's what a minister looks like. Now we're going to talk about what does a minister preach. Starting in verse 7, it says this, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, 
which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory, 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 because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Man, he says glory a lot. I don't really notice it until I start to say it out loud. Here, Paul is comparing the old and new covenant for us. This is, uh, growing up, this is one of those things that I never understood. I never understood what is the relationship, what does old covenant and new covenant, what does that even mean? So I put together a little chart just based off of what Paul says right here. So let's take a look. The old covenant is the ministry of death. It's carved in letters on stone. It came with glory, but it was the ministry of condemnation. It was temporary. And the new covenant is the ministry of life written by the Spirit on hearts. It has surpassing glory. It's the ministry of righteousness. It is permanent. Just at a glance, just if I was to hand you this chart and I was to say, which one? Which one do you want to be a part of? At a glance, which would you choose? Probably the new covenant. And so I'm sure this probably raises some questions, this, this, this passage here. What is he talking about? He kind of preaches the new covenant and then he compares them, but that's it. So fortunately, we can use scripture to inform scripture. Paul's already brought up some, uh, some images of the Old Testament, some mention of the law. Remember I said he mentioned Exodus 31. If you've ever seen any sort of Bible movie... Any sort of Bible movie or cartoon, personally, when I think of this scene, I think of the Prince of Egypt. <laughs> if you've ever seen anything like that, you'd know that this is a classic scene in the Old Testament. Where in Exodus chapter 31, you see Moses who speaks with God on a mountaintop, and then he descends with two carved tablets of stone, and usually there's like lightning, and his hair is blowing, and it's super intense. This is the law. These are the Ten Commandments that he brings down from the mountain. And what's interesting is we almost see immediately that punishment for the Israelites in rebelling and sin and uh, committing offenses against God and disobeying these commandments and this law is death. In Exodus chapter 32, 27 and 28, God brings death to these people. I don't have time to go through and, and read all of it, but if you want to go ahead and look back there and reference it, Later today on your own, that's Exodus chapter 32. Just read the whole thing. It's about the golden calf. We see immediately that the punishment for sin and for disobeying these commandments and God's law is death. So does that sound a little strict to you? Does that sound a little bit unloving? Raise your hand if that sounds a little bit ridiculous, a little bit intense. I, I think it does. So I want to read to you what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And this is what he says about the law. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in, the members, in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He's referring to that law. So what then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That sounds like an odd last verse that he includes there. But what I think Paul is saying is that the law informed him of what it meant to sin against a holy God, but it did not empower him to follow those commandments. It did not empower him to be able to follow God's command. Let me, uh, let me give you the rule of the stove. The rule of the stove. My mother... When I was little, I recall she was working in the kitchen one time, and I think the phone rang in the other room, and she was going to run and grab the phone. And I'm, I'm young, and I'm in the kitchen. And this is not to say that my mom is a bad mother who left me alone in the kitchen with the hot stove, but if she was going to say something when she went to grab the phone to me, what would she say? Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. And that is a loving thing for my mother to say to me. But as soon as she left the room, if it's just me and the stove, what am I going to do? I'm going to touch the stove. It is not unloving for my mother to present this rule, this commandment to me. If maybe that's how you thought and you wanted to raise kids and never, ever give them any sort of rule, just see how well that works out. It's interesting that I know the stove is hot. I know the rule, and I still touch it. And that still applies to my own life today. I know in many ways, in many cases, what God says to me, what God wants of me, and I still disobey God. But I want to keep reading. This is what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is immediately after. This is what Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See this kind of dichotomy here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So praise God that I now, as an adult, can sit down and cook a meal for my mother using the very same stove that she once commanded me not to touch. I become so enlightened that I am able to do that because now I understand being saved that my righteousness does not come from my obedience to the law as it does from Christ's obedience to the law and my dependence on Him. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that you can take God's commands and you can take the Old Testament and you can just ignore them for a more spiritual interpretation of it. Nor do I mean that the entirety of the Old Testament is outdated or something like that. But I am saying that we are sufficient to be ministers of the gospel because we understand something. That a holy God made a law. That holy God does not participate with sin. And we ourselves are unable to keep that law. 
But God has sent his own sacrifice in Jesus to make it so that I can keep God's commandments. And even if and when I fail and falter like we all do, I am under a grace and a power that is not my own but comes from God. This is what it means to preach the new covenant. A minister preaches the new covenant. So what does that look like? Let me give you a practical example. Let's say that you are out at Panera or somewhere and you meet somebody who wants to talk to you about spiritual things and you quickly realize that they don't adhere to the same ideals of sexuality that you do. Maybe they don't adhere to the same standards that the Bible has set up. Is the first thing that you say, are the first words out of your mouth something to condemn them for their unrighteous behavior? Is that the first thing that you say to them? Maybe they're, they're not believers. Do you immediately condemn them? If you do this, you're probably peddling a legalistic old covenant. And maybe you're not wrong. Maybe that is not even bad to say there is a point where we must all be confronted with sin. But if that's the first word out of your mouth, I want to encourage you to speak about the new covenant which surpasses the glory of the old covenant. Instead, talk about the richness, the richness of life in Christ and how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in Christ, you understand what it's like to have a relationship with the God of the universe. And talk about the hope that life is more than just chasing dissatisfaction, but there is rest and satisfaction in God. This is what it means to preach the new covenant instead of the old covenant. That is what a minister preaches. So now we're in the last section. What is the result? What is the result? What is the result of a minister of God preaching the new covenant? Go ahead and uh, look in verse uh, 12. Since we, ha since we have such a hope that I just referenced, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now with the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, or liberty. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Lord who is Spirit. What is the result? Uh, he says it um, in the very first verse here in verse 12. We all have hope, and that results in boldness. That results in boldness. It's really interesting that Paul almost challenges Moses here, which I wouldn't do. I wouldn't have the gumption to do that. But he refers to Exodus 34 in that same kind of narrative sequence with, Paul and the, or, uh, with Moses and the Israelites. After Moses would speak with God, Upon that mountaintop, his face would shine and he would put a veil over his face because it was pretty much blinding to the Israelites. But then the Israelites were hardened because they understood that they couldn't comply with that law in and of themselves. They were hardened towards God. And many people, Israelites or otherwise, are hardened now because they reject Christ 
They actively reject Christ and say, I can be moral enough, I can be good enough, I can be successful enough, even with things that aren't bad. I'm a good enough father, I'm a good enough spouse, what have you. The minister who is bold challenges this. And they create in that person a boldness. They understand this in Galatians chapter 3. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed, cursed is everyone who, hang, who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is what he's saying. Somebody who preaches the new covenant must be very bold to say that what you do as a father, what you do as a spouse, what charities you give to, what humanitarian efforts you take part of, what you're an activist for, doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, that doesn't matter if you don't have Christ. That doesn't get you into heaven. You can't buy your way into heaven. Minister who is bold challenges this. I want to encourage you, if you have been on the fence about a relationship with God, I want to tell you to turn to the Lord because turning towards God will remove that barrier between you and Him. You will be able to lift up that veil. I want you to dive in with reckless abandon because Moses removed, like Moses removed his veil when before God, the barrier between you and God is broken when you turn to Him and rely on Christ. It'll take some boldness from you as well to do that. Moving on to verse 17. With the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The second result of preaching the new covenant is not just boldness, but also freedom. Freedom. This doesn't mean freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Rather, you can be free from a hardened heart like Israel, like we see in this passage, that is the result of facing away from God. Instead, turn towards God. Turns toward, turn towards God. Ask any Christian who's been saved for a long time what it means for them to have freedom and the rules and restrictions like my mother placing around the stove that God places around my life liberate me. I no longer have to try to figure out every day of my life how to go, how to, how to live, really. I don't have to do that because I understand that my authority and my trust and my hope is found in God. That is what freedom means. And finally, in verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The third result of a minister of the gospel preaching the new covenant is glory. When you're doing this, you are a worker for God preaching the new covenant. You create glory. So whether you're old or young, if you want to become more and more like God, you'll become 
more and more like God in his glory. You become more and more like the one true minister of the gospel, Jesus himself. Here's the the point I want to make to you guys with all of this. You cannot be casual about ministry. You can't be casual about ministry. Uh, I once heard, uh, I watched a David Platt video recently, and he was talking about how when he was in college, uh, he stood up for a speech class and he was talking about the gospel, the good news, the bad news of sin and the good news of Jesus Christ. And somebody in the back of the class said, do you really believe that if I don't adhere to what you say, then I'm going to hell? And David Platt said, yeah. And that person said, did you know that is the most arrogant and ignorant thing I've ever heard? And David Platt thought about it, and he was like, yeah, it could be. But what if it's, what if it's true? Then it would be the most horrible thing for him not to tell them. You cannot be casual about ministry because like a doctor who has the cure for some incurable disease, you have something so valuable and so precious that is eternal life in Christ that you cannot be casual about it anymore. The time is over for coming to church and sitting in a chair and being a consumer Christian. If you are not a believer, I want you to surround yourself with people that preach the new covenant. If you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to take a step out and join a community group like we have here. I want you to surround yourself with ministers of the gospel who are humble, who are people-oriented. I want you to surround yourself with life-giving people at a life-giving church. And what's going to happen is you will slowly find yourself, as you are preached the new covenant, you will slowly find boldness to begin a relationship with God, freedom in that, and subsequently glory. And you know what's interesting? That'll make you a minister of the gospel. That'll make you humble, understanding that you're an instrument, people-oriented. And you'll preach the new covenant, and that will lead to other people becoming bold, understanding freedom, understanding glory. We cannot be casual about ministry, whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you're a believer or not. This is what it means to be a minister of the gospel. Paul is a worker for God whose core belief system revolves around making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, thank you for this reminder this morning about our chief end, our chief goal. God, I pray that we would understand what it means to be a minister of the gospel and how that applies to each and every one of us. God, thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us when we are not good and faithful to you. God, I pray that you would empower us, give us strength that we need to step out in faith, whether that means joining a community group or, or, or speaking to a pastor or, or what have you, or starting some sort of new outreach. God, I pray that you would allow us to step out in faith by your strength because not only are you the beginning of our source of strength for ministry, but you are the end all and the point of glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.